Good morning. Those of you who haven't been here the last month, you will know, may not know, that we are just finishing our series on mental health, uh, February's Mental Health Month, and we've been looking at the subject of depression. So the first week we looked at a cultural perspective on depression and used uh, Pharrell Williams and 21 Pilots uh, as two cultural examples uh, to discuss the whole topic of depression. The second week we looked at a psychological perspective and talked about J.K. Rowling and Robin Williams and the perspective on depression that we got from them. Last week we talked about a spiritual perspective on depression with Martin Luther and William Cowper and in a number of those sessions, we looked at an old painting uh, as a way to capture what went on in the past and how people understood this area. One of the problems these days is with the, the concern with the contemporary world, we often forget that we in this culture may not be as knowledgeable as we think we are in certain subjects. And I suggest to you that on this subject of depression, uh, there are many Christians now who've lost a sense of their own history and lost a sense of history generally and don't understand things as well as people did back in the past. And so in front of you, uh, you see a fairly famous painting by Vincent van Gogh, the Dutch Impressionist painter, who was born in 1853 and passed away in 1890. So uh, passed away when he was 37 years old. And most people who know about art history would recognize and believe that he died by suicide because he was in an asylum in the last years of his life. Uh, this painting is called Sorrowing Old Man at Eternity's Gate. Sorrowing Old Man at Eternity's Gate. And Van Gogh has got an interesting history. He was a missionary uh, to Belgium, actually, early in his life but battled depression a lot of his life, uh, and so depression was a big theme for him. He did this as a lithograph, just a sketch, when he was younger, and then when he was in the asylum, which is what it was called back then, for his battle with depression in the closing years of his life, uh, he painted this painting, Sorrowful Old Man at Eternity's Gate, and within two months of painting this painting, he died, and again, most people would acknowledge that he died by suicide. One of the things this raises, of course, is the question of age and depression. Uh, there are some interesting, there's interesting data on this, which I'm not going to get into this morning, but a lot of us assume that it's sort of older people that struggle with depression, or, and there is a lot of data that suggests people in their 60s, there's a lot of suicide uh, that occurs for people in their 60s for a whole lot of reasons. But one of the things that Van Gogh teaches us is that here's somebody at 37 years of age, many would say in the prime of their life, whose depression is so bad, even though he's been treated in an asylum, uh, he ends up uh, dying as a result of suicide. And so our last session today is going to be on the subject of depression as it relates to children and to youth. And we've asked Jan Bryant to speak on this, partially because of her professional training and experience. Jan has been a CAP for many years, uh, many of you know that. Uh, started out as a landscaper and then went into uh, law and became a lawyer and then did counseling and did work in grief and 
loss and death and dying kinds of themes. So Jan has had a, I don't want to say a checkered career because that would sound negative, but she's done a lot of different things. And if you were here last week, uh, we ended last week with the very poignant story of Jan's experience of losing Lindsay, her 10-year-old uh, daughter, to a tragic accident uh, that she actually was at. And so she not only has professional credibility to speak on these kind of subjects, but has deep personal experience as well. So join me in welcoming Jan Bryant. Hi. As well, I've worked in schools for the last 20 years as a counselor. So I've worked with students from kindergarten right up to grade 12. So this is a uh, look at statistics for children, uh, Teenagers and young adults, up to 24. It's a Canadian statistic. So 50% have no mental distress. And I think Rod had a very similar statistic at the beginning of his first presentation. 30% of our teens and young adults have mental distress of some kind. 15% have a mental health problem. And 5% have a mental disorder. So if you want to know if the kids are all right, 50% of the kids are all right. The top two tiers is 20% of our kids are really struggling. And of those kids, one in six has access to health, uh, to help or mental health support. Uh, it's very poor for teens. What's, there's lots available for kids, there's lots available for adults, but there's not that much available for teens. Uh, the Hope Center has been a big help because they actually provide some support. So. All of us are quirky. I'm quirky, my kids are quirky, everybody I know is quirky, and quirky's fine. But if you take quirk and you add stress, you move up that scale. So for our kids that are stressed, and for our kids who are stressed and sleep deprived, which is another form of stress, but you put the two of them together, you're heading farther and farther towards mental uh, distress and mental disorders. So I deal with teens. I have, uh, I, I do a little sleep survey every year of my grades 11s and grades, grade 12s as to how many are getting the required amount of sleep every night. This year it's one in grade 12 and three in grade 11. Most of them are up till one or two in the morning, which is not healthy because chronic sleep deprivation is the same thing as being stressed out. So how can you tell if your child or your adolescent is depressed? They're sad, or they're irritable, or they're crying a lot, or they're angry, or they're all of those things. Different from what they normally are. You can see that all of these things are increasing. They have no interest in previously enjoyed activities. They just don't want to go. They don't want to be there. They don't want to do those things. They don't want to see friends or family. They withdraw from all of those kind of social activities. Now, some of us have sensitive kids who need to withdraw. They just need to go to their be bedroom and read a book and calm down, and that's fine. But if that becomes what they do all the time, then that's an indication they may be on the de depression track. Negative thinking. They only notice the bad things. Now, some children are wired this way. They have a negative bias about the world. They're melancholic in temperament. Think of Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh. Doesn't matter if it's sunny out. Eeyore says, yes, but it'll rain tomorrow. So if you have one of those, ch those children and that's their temperament, 
you're, that's what you're working with. But if it gets worse, or if you have a sunny child who turns into Eeyore, then that's an indication. Changes in appetite and sleep. People who are depressed can eat more. Uh, some of them just, the comfort of eating seems to help them. Some of them stop eating and they lose weight. Same with sleep, some sleep 10, 12, 14 hours a day and then they wake up and go lie on the couch and put a blanket over their head. Some of them have trouble sleeping. So sleep disturbances are always an indication that something's going on here. Tired or has low energy, possibly slow moving, often they're sort of hunched over and look like an old man or an old woman. Problems thinking, concentrating, or making decisions. This is a problem in school because you have to do all of those things. And you may notice a drop in their marks uh, and their ability to read and finish homework and remember stuff for tests. Can't see their own positive qualities. They speak negatively about themselves. Even if you tell them all the good things you see about themselves, they don't see them. They blame themselves for things that are not their fault. They feel like a disappointment or burden to others. They feel numb, bored, empty, dead inside, hopeless. Hopeless is a big issue for depression. Hopeless and feel that nothing will change. Now, depression isn't having a bad day. Some of us wake up in the morning and we feel terrible and we don't want to do anything. And we have no interest in anything. And we don't want to see anybody and we just want to lie on the couch and put a blanket over our head or watch Netflix all day or do something else and sort of back off from life, that's a bad day. But depression is at least three weeks in a row these symptoms exist. So it's not a one-time thing. The kids will say, oh, I'm depressed today. It's like, mm, no, you're having a bad day, different thing. So what causes or influences depression? There's two kinds of depression. I talked about this last week, situational and biochemical. So situational depression is uh, can be caused by grief, loss, trauma. It can be a big trauma, or it could be chronic developmental trauma. So this is a child who lives in a situation where it's not safe, or it's random, or their parents can't be relied on, or there isn't enough food on a regular basis. It's chaotic, or it's unreliable. And the, the stress of that can lead children and young people to depression. Bullying, we often know that... Uh, we know that kids who are bullied often end up depressed, and why wouldn't you be? Life or family changes, there's uh, divorce or death or uh, something else happens. Moving can of often be a trigger for depression for a child or school change. So psychological vulnerability. If your child has poor coping skills or they're in Eeyore and have a negative worldview, they have low self-esteem, or they have high or unrealistic expectations of themselves or others, then that sets them up for, for being depressed. If they're a perfectionist, this is a problem. Biochemical, change in brain chemistry. So this is the kind of depression which is treated with antidepressant medication. Can be a genetic disposition. We know that if there is mental illness in the family, it is a higher percentage of uh, offspring would have that propensity to head towards a mental disorder. The nine-year change, if you don't know what the nine-year change, ask me later because that's a 20-minute talk all in itself. Puberty. Puberty starts sending 
uh, surges of hormones into your children's systems, but it doesn't know this child weighs 100 pounds and they just need this much testosterone or this much estrogen. Uh, at puberty, you get floods of it. And it comes in floods, which can be 100 or 200 times what the average man or woman would have in a well-regulated system. So for children, it's overwhelming when they get in testosterone flood. When boys are in testosterone flood, the prefrontal cortex goes offline and they can't think. And when you say to a teenage boy, what were you thinking? They weren't. They were in testosterone flood. Brain's gone. If you, for girls in estrogen flood, they tend to get very emotional. And you find them in the bathroom crying and sobbing their eyes out. And all their friends are clustered around them. And you, I take them into my office. We have a chat. I get them something to eat, something to drink. They go home and sleep the next day. They're fine going, why was I so upset about that? So when you're dealing with teenagers, if they're in estrogen flood or testosterone flood, you got to make allowances for that. For teens who are helping each other, Boys, take care of each other. If your friend is in testosterone flood and comes up with an idea and you're not in testosterone flood, you need to say to them, that's a bad idea, you're not doing that. So biological um, factors. If you have thyroid issues, if you have anemia, if you have chronic pain, if you have a significant injury, or if you have a disability, all of these can be uh, factors for depression. Comorbidity, kids with ADHD, uh, that's attention deficit, or <clears throat> ADD is attention deficit, ADHD is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. These kids don't usually do well in school because they have trouble paying attention. Anybody, everybody is on their case because they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. So often these kids uh, tend towards depression. If you have an anxiety disorder, that can always also push you along the depression spectrum. If you have an eating disorder, uh, because your brain is not working, because it doesn't have enough nutrients, you can also be depressed. And the use of drugs. We know that the use of drugs often pushes people into depression. Marijuana is one of them, opioids is one, and alcohol is a depressant. So what can I do as a parent or as a friend? God's perspective is you are loved absolutely, completely, and unconditionally. There's nothing you could do that would change the way I feel about you. I feel the same way about your kids or your friends. I hope you do too. So that's a, the overall overarching perspective is God loves us absolutely. God does not expect us to be perfect. There is no way on earth to be a perfect parent. But there are millions of ways to be a good parent or a good friend. There's some scripture there. Nope. All right. Well, that's what we believe here, and there's scripture to support that. Secure attachment. So these are two basic principles. Your children and your friends need this. Secure attachment. From a parent's perspective, your child needs to be securely attached to, the, to you. From your child's perspective, what that means is you, my parents, and friends too, you are safe. You are trustworthy. You are completely reliable and you're a source of comfort. You're clear and consistent with your boundaries, and I know what's going on, or I trust that you do. You don't scare me, and you don't make me feel small. You get me, including my quirks, and you love me. The thing about quirks is, if you have a child who tends to the Eeyore disposition, and you stress them, and they're sleep-deprived, they'll end up in depression. If you have a child who is 
cautious and watchful and sensitive to the needs of others, and you stress them, they're going to end up in anxiety. If you have a child who's very neat and tidy, not, not all of us get these, uh, and, and they like to put their stuffies in a nice row along their bed, and they like to take their toy trucks and line them up in a certain way on their shelf, and they like things a certain way, you stress them, they're going into OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. So if you notice your children getting these symptoms, it's your job as a parent to pull back and make sure that they get de-stressed. So a child needs to feel, my parents love me absolutely. And this is kind of an inoculation for them, but it also teaches them about the character of God. If they have um, parents who are negative and critical and demanding and whatever you do is not good enough, that's a problem for a child. And I work in Richmond. I have a lot of Asian high school students, and they are stressed to the max because their parents expect what I believe is unattainable things for them. And when I meet with the parents, I tell them, you have to look at the gifting that God gave your child. Maybe they're not gifted to be an engineer. That's what you want for them. But what do they want? And let's look at them together and look and see what God has gifted them with. What are the skills that, and abilities and passions that God has placed in your child's heart? So that's the basic one. If your child can't see God's nature in you as a parent, then that's where you've got to go. You've got to lean on that. And your child should feel that they can come to you and tell you anything. Now, my kids could do that to me, and, and we talk through everything. And sometimes my son would say, it is so hard being the child of a counselor because we have to talk about everything and talk it through. Like, can't you just yell at me for 10 minutes? Like, no. No, we don't lecture. You're a good kid. You're on the right road. You went off the road and you ended up over here, which was not a good place. So we're going to walk it back and we're going to figure out where you took that first step off the road so that you don't go off the road in that direction again. Because if we don't go back and figure that out, you're just going to keep going down that road. We don't want you down that road. Not a good place. Didn't work out for you. Didn't work out for me. So let's walk it back and figure it out. Uh, my daughter talked to me about drugs and all kinds of decisions that she was making. And even if your kids come to you and tell you something and inside your brain you're freaking out, don't freak out in front of them. Listen and listen and listen and listen. And then quietly go to your bathroom and freak out there. But you want to help your child to feel, my parents get me and I can tell them anything and they're trustworthy. Okay, the next thing is secure functioning. They need to live in a space where they feel secure. The home I live in is full of love and laughter. My parents work together. They're not mean to each other or to me or my siblings. Life is predictable. It's not scary. We stick up for each other and take care of each other. We can talk about our problems. We listen to each other. We treat each other with dignity and respect. Now, some people get make a family motto. Um, after my ex left, there was Margot and Graham and I left, and our motto was all for one and one for all. We were the three musketeers, and that's, you know, we just took care of each other. So whatever your family motto is, it should be something about those values, but make it up for yourself and make something that works for you and for your family. So what else can I do? Keep it real. Don't give your kids iPads, smartphones, or computers. You have them. 
because you're adults and you loan them to your child and then when you want it back, you take it back. Tell the well-meaning grandparents, do not buy my child an iPad. Because if it's theirs, and you're supposed to you know, watch how much time they've gone on it, and you want to take it back, they're like, uh-uh, that's mine. Grandma gave it to me. You cannot take it back. So no electronics that they own. You may loan them electronics, and then you may take them back when you need them. Uh, smartphones. No child on the planet needs a smartphone. Most teens don't need them either. So the problem, we, we're conducting a social experiment on our young people right now. This is a generation that are glued to their phones. We all comment on it. We're all kind of worried about it. 20 years from now, we will have studied what happened to their brains from being on these devices all the time, and it probably won't be good. However, I see nine-year-olds that have smartphones. No nine-year-old needs a smartphone, but parents say they need it for safety and security then buy them a flip phone. They can call you, they can text you, that's all they can do. But if you give them a smartphone, they have access to the internet. They can watch YouTube videos all day, or porn, or a number of other things that are unhealthy, and no one is guiding them through that. So, you know, giving your nine-year-old, or your 11-year-old, or your 15-year-old access to all of these devices, you may as well flip them the keys to your Maserati and say, there you go, have a good time. It's about that dangerous. So if they need a phone for security, give them a flip phone. Social media, very dangerous thing for teens. So many teens I know are depressed because what they've seen on social media. They are looking at other people's lives and their carefully curated lives that are perfect. And they look and say, that's not my life. I don't have that. I don't have those vacations. I'm not buying those things. And also, bullying comes from through social media, too. We deal with a, a lot at our schools, from 9-year-olds, from 12-year-olds, from 15-year-olds, all the way through. So social media is great for getting in touch with grandma that lives in Ontario or people that live somewhere else. Great for keeping in touch with people. But if it's somebody you see every day at school, you should not be on social media with them. Nothing good happens on social media. And also all these kids that have phones and take them into their bedroom at night, they're texting at two in the morning. And I can pretty much tell you that what goes on at two in the morning in text is not great. People say things and then they come to school the next morning and they have to look somebody in the face that they've just said something that was too revealing or uh, not very positive to, it just causes a lot of trouble. So if you have given your children phones an hour before bedtime, collect all their electronics and you have a charging station which locks and everybody puts their uh, electronics in there and you lock them overnight. Nobody's on their electronics at night. And if they say, I need my phone for my alarm, buy them alarm an alarm clock. So. Uh, don't let your kids watch the news on TV, especially little ones, because what they see, it's not the good news, it's the bad news. It's all the terrible, horrible things that have happened in the world, and they can do nothing about it. So especially for the younger kids, keep them off the TV news. I do not watch the TV news, ever. I read the newspaper. And then, I know all the terrible, bad things that are happening in the world, but I don't have the visuals that are stuck in my head. Especially for sensitive children, the TV news is terrifying. Uh, Limit what they watch on TV and the computer, or if you let them watch, watch it with them. And you're thinking, but I need the TV to babysit them so I can make dinner or do something else. I think you need to know what they're being exposed to. 
if they play games on the computer, watch or play with them and figure out what's going on in the game. And then you can comment on the social interactions in the game or what the strategy is behind it so that you know what's going on in their head. Avoid educating them too early about all the terrible ways we have wrecked their planet. This is very discouraging for young children who can't do anything about it, but I see it all the time in schools. In grade two, we'll have a little unit on penguins, and we learn all about the different kinds of penguins and where they live in Antarctica and how they take care of their eggs. It's gorgeous, and it's lovely, and it's wonderful. And then we tell them that the ice shelf is melting, and Antarctica is falling apart, and it's polluted, and, and we need to save Antarctica. And then we learn about the birds in the rainforest, and we learn all the wonderful things, and then we learn that people are burning the rainforest, and we've got to have a bake sale and raise money so we can buy a square acre of rainforest. Constant. Uh, too much information for our children. They need to learn to love God's planet, love the world. And then when they're older, th we can tell them all the ways that we've wrecked it and that they have to clean it up. But when they're little, they need to love the world. And if they are oppressed too early with the ways of how their planet is unsustainable and it's a bad place and we've wrecked it, this is not good for their hearts and souls. They need to learn to love God's world. Limit structured extracurricular activities. So my limit for my kids was two. And maybe, if they weren't coping well, one. So people say, but they have to take swimming and hockey, and they love soccer, and then, but there's piano, and then there's language lessons. They got a long list of my things my kids have to do. No, they don't have to do them. What happens in all of these activities, they're run by adults and there's expectations, and there's drills, and you have to do things and perform things, and you get evaluated on them, and your piano lessons, and you have to, you know, you're not doing that right, and you need to do that. Like, even if they love swimming, and then my par par kid parents would say, my kids love swimming, I'm gonna put them on the swim team. It's like, no, maybe not. Maybe just let them love swimming. So, all of those extracurricular activities cause stress in kids. Like, how many kids get a chance to just lie on their bed and stare at the ceiling for half an hour with somebody n not coming and telling them you need to be doing something purposeful. This is the sort of the North American mindset is all of our activity has to be purposeful and it has to have sort of an end goal. No, not for kids. They need downtime, they need creative time, they need time to just sort through what happened in their life. And we keep them so busy that they don't have that time and also, all of these busy things have expectations. And it's too, it's too much for them to meet those expectations. They just had a whole six hours at school full of expectations. And then we want to put them in a whole bunch more things. Give them lots of opportunities to be creative and build imagination. So someone famous said, imagination is more important than knowledge. Who said that? Absolutely true. Albert Einstein. He would know. He's a smart guy. Uh, it is very important that your children get a chance to be creative because it is in being creative that we find out what, um, what we're passionate about and what God created us for and what we love. And imagination, if you have a good imagination, it means that when you're in a situation and you feel stuck, you can think of possible ways out of it. If you have no imagination, you land someplace and there you are. You have no idea how to get out of it. So it's very important that we give children the time and the space to build their imaginations. Stay out of the car as much as possible. That is a stress zone. 
We live in Vancouver. Traffic is insane. You are probably insane trying to negotiate traffic and get all your kids to all your activities all the time. And it's not good for children. It's not good for us either, but it's really not good for children to be locked in a car. So I also uh, work in Smithers, and I uh, work in the Bulkley Valley Christian School there, and then one day in the community. And sometimes I get parents say, I get parents that say to me, oh, you know, we don't live in town. You know, we have to commute. I said, like, how long's your commute? Oh, 10 minutes. Like, you had no idea. In North Van, in 10 minutes, you can go half a mile. So they have no idea what a traffic jam is. But still, they think, you know, oh, it's, I, I'm stressing my kid by putting him in the car for 10 minutes. Like, that's nothing in Vancouver. So um, give your child, kids their wildhood back. Now, there was a commercial on TV. Uh, it might still be on there. But these kids are running and jumping and playing and in water. And it says, children want their wildhoods back. I may be the last generation, uh, maybe the one after me, where I came home from school. I put my play clothes on. I went outside with my brothers, and we didn't come back till dinner. We did the same thing in the summer. We got up. We got dressed. We went out. We didn't come back. I mean, maybe for lunch, maybe for dinner. But we just spent our whole time outside in God's creation, discovering things. Now, what happens to kids these days is you can't let them run free in the woods because there's weird people in there and other stuff going on. But um, I used to take my kids down to McKay Creek, and we would muck about. We would wander. We would look for places where maybe birds live or raccoons could live. They'd play in the creek. They'd play poo sticks, which if you know any of the poo, you know you drop uh, sticks on one side of the bridge, and then you rush over to the other side to see which one comes out first. I mean, we just mucked about. And they loved it, and I loved it too. It took me back to my childhood. However, there are many people who think, okay, my kids need to be outdoors more. They need fresh air. We're going on a hike. This is a particular North American idea is we're outside, and we have a goal, and we have to get there. In England, they ramble. Much nicer word. You're out walking. You're stopping. You're looking what's there. You're seeing what's over here. Oh, let's go this way. Same in France. You amble. Nobody's going on a hike, and we have to get there. And the problem with kids that go on hikes with their parents is somebody has the idea that we have to get to this place, and they're, you know, chivying people along. Come on, keep up. And it's not fun for anybody. Nobody's having a good time. So get them outside, mucking about, having fun, discovering, building, that kind of thing. Slow everything down. If your child had a fever, you would put them in bed. They would not be going to soccer. You would be feeding them chicken soup. You would be caring for them and talking to them. You'd be talking quietly to them and slowly. Nobody would be running around and screaming. You'd slow everything down when your child has a physical fever. So when they have a soul fever, when they're showing us they're having trouble coping, why don't we just slow everything down and just say, no, you're not going there tonight. Now, your coach, your kid's coach, soccer coach, may have something to say about that. They may not get played on the weekend, but, you know, you have to, your kids come first. Their mental health is more important. Listen and empathize. Most important thing to do to your kids is, with your kids is listen to them. Let them tell you what's on their heart, what's on their mind. Don't try and fix them. Just listen. And then say, that sounds tough. What are you thinking? What do you think you might want to do about that? You got any ideas about that? They might. 
they might not. If they don't, then you can share some ideas. But lots of times parents listen and they say, well, you need to do this and this and this. And you just go tell Johnny to leave you alone or whatever your solution is. That doesn't actually help your kids. And their kids feel like, my parents don't get me. They just tell me what to do. So you want to help them develop some of that resiliency, some of those skills. You want them to understand, I have skills, I have abilities, I have coping strategies. And you want to coach them in that. And if you need help with that, there's lots of help available out there. So for kids who are depressed, a lot of times the parents will say things or their friends will say things like, but think of all the good things that are going on in your life. It's like, you don't get it. It's better to just sit there and be in it with them and be present to whatever their feelings are and say, yeah, this is hard. What do you want to do? It's yes and. It's not yes but you're going to, you know, try these things. Read three scriptures and you'll be fine. Or, you know, just go for a walk and you'll be fine. Or you need to, you know, just get up and do this. You'll be fine. It's yes, you're depressed. Yes, you're feeling this way. And what else can you do? Yes, you can still be depressed, but yes, we can do other things too as well. So it's yes and. So if your child still, you've relieved the stress, they are sleeping well, and you need help, get them to help early. Because when children and teens are going through um, depression or other psychological struggles, it's laying down neural pathways in their brain. This is prime time for neural development in your brain. And if they're depressed or if they're anxious, they need help for that right away so they can start building new neural pathways. A child who's been depressed for 10 years will be a depressed adult because now that's the way their brain is wired. So if they are having trouble and they're really struggling, you want to get them help right away. So for any teens that are in the room, uh, very often depressed people have negative thoughts. Some of those negative thoughts are of suicide. As a teen, if someone says to you, I am thinking about killing myself, don't tell anyone, you can say, I'm glad you told me that, but I cannot promise not to tell. I have to tell an adult. Uh, many, I'm, I've known of many teen suicides, and after the fact, there are always people who come out of the woodwork and say, yes, they told me that, but they told me not to tell anybody. And for those students, they carry that guilt with them for the rest of their life. Maybe if I'd said something, that person would still be alive. So as a teen, if somebody tells you that and tells you to keep a secret, you can say, I'm glad you told me, but I can't keep a secret. I have to tell someone because I want you to be well. So resources. The best resource that I know of is keltymentalhealth.ca. This is great for parents and teachers and anybody who's concerned about mental health. They, uh, it's the Kelty family built this website, and they also have, at the Hope Center, they have a reading room with lots of resources in it. Their son uh, died by suicide in a, his teen years, and they tried to get help for them for him and could not find help and they tried to get help for themselves as parents and could not find help and they have dedicated their lives to making mental health uh, awareness an important aspect of education so that website has so many great resources on it and then as a, a subsidiary of that they have made a website for teens called foundrybc.ca don't google the foundry or you'll find out about um, 
industrial foundries. So foundrybc.ca, teens can go on, it's teen friendly. Um, there's quizzes that they can do, uh, you know, am I depressed or, you know, tell me more about this or how can I help a friend? But the Kelty Mental Health um, site has great information, things you can do as a parent. If your child is diagnosed with one of these things, mental illnesses or other things, you can go on there and find out what you, what you can do as a parent and resources that are in your community. It's a great resource and it's BC oriented. <coughs> Some of you may have a question you'd like to ask Jan, so be thinking about that for a moment. Let me ask you a question to start, and then we can uh, throw it out to the group. What if it's me and my child, or what if it's me and a niece or a nephew or a cousin? What if it's me and a grandchild? And I'm looking at this child, maybe the child's, I don't know, 12, 13, and I'm thinking, I think I'm not real pleased. I think something's going on here. This child looks depressed to me, but I'm not the parent. I'm the relative, I'm the grandparent, I'm the neighbor. What do, what do I do if I see somebody else's child struggling in this area, and, but I'm not the parent? But maybe I'm related. It depends on whether you have a relationship with a child that's the attached one, the trusting one, because then as an uncle or a grandparent or something, you can go and have that conversation with the child or just say, you know, you look down, what's going on? And listen to them. Okay. But if you don't have that relationship, then I would suggest talking to the parents and saying, ah, this is what I'm noticing. I would not lead with, your kid looks depressed. I would say, you know, the, the last few times I've seen Susie, this, this is what I've noticed. Are you seeing the same thing? Because sometimes when you're in it as a parent, it's like a slow increment and you end up here and you didn't, it's happened so slowly. But you as an outsider might see it more quickly than the parents would recognize it. But, you know, just say to the parent, this is what I'm seeing. Are you seeing the same thing? Are you okay. concerned? Okay. And so if I'm a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, that would be appropriate to do to go I to think the so. Okay. And last question, I've got a, um, and again, I speak hypothetically here, I've got a 13-year-old at home, it's pretty obvious she has depression, uh, it's pretty obvious that she needs help, people around me are affirming that, I'm even getting feedback from the school that she's struggling with depression, I need to get her professional help, how do I get her there? Because anytime I even hint at that she needs to go and talk to somebody, the, the resistance is huge. How do I get her from that resistance into a counselor's office? Well, you have to. So um, if you listen to them and hear what they have to say, and you could even say to them, do you think you might be depressed? And then you could say, are you enjoying life? Is this working for you? Do you want things to be different? Because anybody in that much misery usually does, but they're going to be resistant because they're a teenager and because you're the parent. But uh, maybe there's other people who can have that conversation too, but you need to sort of come alongside and say, there is hope, there is help. Do you want it to be different? Because it can be different. I want this for you, do you want this for you? I find in this area too that's helpful is, 
if we're in tune as parents with our own angst and struggle, and we've actually gone for help, that's a great bridge too, isn't it? Like to be able to say, I know this is hard for you. I remember when it was hard for me, but I've been for this. So you're, you're kind of joining with them. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. Or you could even say to them, I can see what's, that you're really struggling here. And if you're not ready to go yet, I mean, there, there will come a time when you are ready to go to just set up that future expectation. But you know what? I'm going to go right now so I can learn more about how to help you. Yeah, yeah. That's a great marriage strategy, too, as well, if one partner won't go for help, which is another series for another time. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Jan.